Welcome to the Neuropedic Sports Rehab Podcast. I'm your host, Ramez Antoon, but please call me Mez. I'm a physical therapist and a strength coach. And in this show, we talk about the continuum of clinical practice to getting back to training in the gym. We focus on sustainable performance and longevity. I'd like to thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy our show. Hey everyone, I want to let you know that you can now apply for our 12-week motor control mentorship. The spring cohort application is in the episode description below. If you're interested in learning more about what we offer, stick around for after the episode for more details. If you like to consume content through reading, we drop a newsletter every Friday morning. So make sure you sign up for that. Also, the sign-up form is in the episode description. All right, without further delay, let's dive into today's episode. All right, the next PNF basic principle, the stretch reflex. If this is your first time joining us, I'm going to summarize the macro uh, framework of the PNF basic principles. The PNF basic principles are broken down into three major sensory systems, visual input, auditory input, and proprioceptive input. We've been hacking away at the proprioceptive input checklist over the last several podcasts. And so far, we've talked about the first four subcategories under the proprioceptive input checklist, that being tactile input, coach and therapist position, number three, appropriate resistance and force, number four, approximation and traction, and now five, the stretch reflex. So let's get into the nuances of the stretch reflex. From a basic fundamental neurophysiological standpoint, we know that the muscle spindle's action potential threshold, i.e. the stretch reflex, will always determine the end range of motion for every joint in our body. The nervous system takes care of that in terms of setting its sensitivity. We also know that the stretch reflex can change moment to moment depending on whether we are in a fight or flight, sympathetic state, or rest and digest a parasympathetic state. Thus, if we're going to positively influence movement, we have no choice but to consider the stretch reflex when going into any form of mobilization, whether that be manually or when we're coaching self-mobilization techniques. So acknowledging that the muscle spindle's action potential threshold can be manipulated by either breath work and or various post-isometric relaxation techniques can be a profound or can make a profound difference in the work with our clients, especially when it comes to mobility training. So let's take, for example, that I'm having a hard time getting someone to uh, improve their dorsiflexion at the ankle. We'll make it super simple, all right? Well, instead of perseverating on what the patient can't do, dorsiflexion, we might be able to take a step back for a second and consider the stretch reflex. And the thought process would be something like this. Well, What if the stretch sensitivity or the stretch tolerance of the antagonist muscle group to dorsiflexion, i.e. the calf, soleus, gastroc, and the posterior structures, the sensitivity of those structures or those um, spindle apparatuses are so high that it's just not allowing for more dorsiflexion. So the thought process could lead me to perform a bunch of contract, relax, post-isometric relaxation techniques, first to the antagonist muscle group, so the calf, and once we gain some range of motion into dorsiflexion, we progress 
into something like a place and hold technique, for example, where we're passively taking them to a new area of dorsiflexion and then saying, okay, now hold here. Don't let me pull you out of this position, thus training the agonist muscle, the anterior uh, chin muscles, anterior tib, so that you train that new range. <clears throat> so breathe, hold, and we're really developing both, or we're coupling both breath work in contract, relax, agonist contract techniques in order to down-regulate the stretch reflex sensitivity and communicate to the nervous system that this new range of motion is safe. But by demonstrating that you can create contractile forces on both sides of the joint in this new range of motion. Now, we're going to get into this a little bit later, but Andrea Spina did a beautiful job at popularizing pales and rails, post-isometric or post-angular isometric loading and regressive angular isometric loading, which is similar to contract, relax, agonist, contract. However, he made a point that it's about progressing the time under tension of both sides of the joint. So in PNF land, because we were working primarily with neurological pathology, contract, relax, agonist, contracts techniques were not done nearly with enough time to develop time under tension, respectable time under tension on both sides of the joint. So for example, I might have somebody do a contract, relax, agonist, contract, to improve ankle dorsiflexion, and they may be loading both the calf and the anterior shin muscles for one to two minutes at the end of my contract, relax, agonist, contract session with them. So that's the biggest difference there is time under tension is critical so that we can actually quote unquote reset the stretch sensitivity or the spindles threshold and tolerance to um, mobility. Otherwise, contract, relax, agonist, contract only serves as a cool party trick. If we actually want adaptable changes in mobility and being able to acquire and, and use new range, that time under tension piece is huge. And that's how we're going to really attack this stretch reflex. If you'd like to hear more about how breathwork influences the central nervous system, I really get into that in episode 25 of our podcast. And I also discuss how breathwork helps to make manual therapy and mobility training more effective in episode 26. So it's really the, the amalgamation of these different concepts that really help us attack the stretch reflex and helping to reset its um, sensitivity or its threshold. Now, some of you may be thinking, Oh yeah, contract, relax, helps promote reciprocal inhibition. That makes total sense. Now, if, if that's what you're thinking, I urge you to read this blog article I wrote about the stretch reflex and the myth of reciprocal inhibition. In this blog, I'll link it in the episode uh, notes or description. In this blog, I bring up the most up-to-date science and the literature regarding why these techniques seem to work with more up-to-date narratives than quote-unquote inhibition and relaxation because if you're looking at the EMG studies, bottom line, after post-isometric relaxation, we're actually seeing an increase in EMG activity, not a decrease, which is suggesting that relaxation is actually not happening. There's a desensitization that's happening at the stretch 
receptor level. Uh, so there's a neurological adaptation there. I'll leave it at that. I urge you to read the, the article. I get into some of the literature there. Okay, so now let's shift gears. Let's pretend you're trying to perform a joint mobilization. You just don't feel like you're getting anywhere because you're just feeling a ton of protection, a protective tone from the client. They're guarding. You're just hitting a brick wall. Now, one thought could be, well, just completely bail and mobilizing the joint altogether. And maybe that's a good choice. Or we can consider the stretch reflex sensitivity in the scenario as well. Now we step back and we think of ways to downregulate this hypersensitivity and guarding <clears throat> by getting the patient to relax, be comfortable, trust our touch via any of the following. We talked about the post-isometric relaxation technique, deep breathing or deep diaphragmatic breathing techniques. There it goes again. We can do some facilitation of the rib cage. And all I mean by that is just manually assisted rib mobilizations to assist with diaphragm, lung expan expansion. <clears throat> now, there's plenty of PNF techniques for this, PRI techniques, DNS techniques. There's techniques everywhere for this. Fascial techniques, you can use um, various different massage techniques around the area you're working on or adjacent to the area you're working on. And this can be simply just to promote a parasympathetic response, a systemic parasympathetic response. Oh yeah, that feels good. Get that patient to relax and deep breathe. You can perform trigger point techniques under that area. <clears throat> because some of the reason applying deep long standing pressure manipulates the stretch reflex and helps to reduce that tone. So sometimes in, in neuro, <clears throat> with neuro patients, excuse me, when we just could not get the quads to uh, settle down from extensor tone, a lot of times getting them in kneeling in that deep patella tendon pressure would allow for some quad tone to relax so we can get into various positions and postures. Um, so deep pressure to the muscle belly or to the tendon for long periods of time can help with that. So after using some of these relaxation techniques, we then come back to the joint mobilization that was giving us trouble before. In my experience, joint mobilizations are 10 times more effective after applying some of the modalities we just listed above or combining some of them like a chef in the kitchen, right? Sometimes you come back to the joint mobilization and it's still like hitting a brick wall. So maybe you do go and bail and try something else. But these are just some of the things that can provoke our thought process or thought processes and clinical problem solving skills when we're met with this type of roadblock during our sessions. Remember the stretch reflex, how can we downregulate? how can we desensitize it, and then try to come at it at a different angle. Now something that's really important to consider as a manual therapist, as clinicians performing manual techniques with our patients, or if we're coaching them through self-stretching or self-mobilization techniques, I find it really important and really helpful to identify our intent of mobilization. And what I mean by intent of mobilization is there's two different intents. Intents. There's a sensory motor intent and there's a biomechanical intent. When we're mobilizing with a sensory motor intent, we're just trying to change the reflex muscle activity or the stretch reflex sensitivity to improve sensory feedback to the central nervous system prior to some form of motor control or movement training. If we're mobilizing with a biomechanical intent, then we're trying to change actual mechanical tissue length to improve motion 
active versus passive hold should be held for a total of two minutes or more. This goes back to our time under tension um, conversation, if you will. This can take up to four to six weeks to actually demonstrate changes in range of motion if stretching is done correctly and done with isometrics, as we talked about. But there's a huge difference between sensory motor intent. Let's say someone has the mobility already. You're performing some manual techniques just to increase their sensory afferents prior to motor control training, but you're not spending a ton of time developing isometrics at end range, passive holds, and having them work under long periods of time under tension. You're just doing it for inputs. Whereas when you're mobilizing with a biomechanical intent and you're actually dealing with um, connective tissue that's been shortened and limited for long periods of time, the, the time, the frequency, the volume changes. So that's how I personally differentiate sensory motor versus biomechanical intent when I'm working with clients. And some of my other <clears throat> therapists that I've worked with and, and coached found that to be really helpful as well. So when we're talking about the stretch reflex, we have to remember when we, in a short term or acutely change the sensitivity of it, the hold or the isometric only needs to be like 10 to 15 seconds long to manipulate the stretch reflex. If there's no additional mechanical tissue extensibility limitation, this is when mobilization efforts can be seen as quote unquote magic. In other words, a big change in movement happens in minutes and sometimes seconds. It's because it's just neurological resting tone. But again, the magic is just this temporary desensitization of the stretch reflex threshold, right? If the agonist and the antagonist muscle groups are not effectively trained in this newly magic gained range of motion or magically gained range of motion, or if they're environmental mechanical stressors, like a terrible pillow or a terrible ergonomic setup, if we're not addressing those, you can bet your muffins that the newly gained range will not last, right? So kind of bringing that full circle here, the stretch reflex, it's easy to change, but it takes some strategy to make sure that we help reestablish that threshold baseline, if you will, and increase mobility and movement abilities. <clears throat> the other thing about sensory motor intent is I found it really helpful to always start with a sensory motor intent to help alter the stretch reflex and the guarding and the protective tone prior to treating true joint or tissue length restrictions. This will also serve to help the patient trust us and help them to relax if we select our intent or our mobilization grade appropriately. In other words, if we're just not using excessive force and we're actually grading our force appropriately, which brings us back to a previous basic PNF principle, using appropriate force. I want you to think of sensory motor intent as like marinating the tissue before actually mobilizing and stretching it. That's if there's a true mobility limitation present. With certain patients, especially the type A personalities, that are being treated for a chronic condition, it's a lot safer to choose a sensory, mo sensory motor intention when you're mobilizing for the first two to three treatment sessions sometimes, especially if there's chronic pain, uh, hypersensitivity like fibromyalgia, um, and these chronically sensitized patients. Don't try to go in there like a cowboy 
I would try to go in with ease because that situation can often backfire when you have this type A chronic pain patient with a very aggressive manual therapist who's gung-ho and doesn't consider the sensory motor intent before going in and biomechanically trying to change stuff, if that makes sense. <clears throat> All right, biomechanical intent, basically it's really associated with more forces better. If, if we're locked into a biomechanical mindset and as manual therapists, that's all we see, it's very easy to use excessive force because your mind or your intent is to change things. <clears throat> and that can very quickly work against you like we just talked about. The patient might come back the next day or the next week and say something like, yeah, I had a lot of muscle spasms after last treatment. I was really sore for like four or five days after last treatment. And now what we have to do is pick them up from this mentally devastating regression because we applied too much force in the first few sessions of us working with them. We, don't, we didn't give ourselves time to calibrate how sensitive their tissues really are. You know, it's very difficult trying to explain to the patient what happened and it often takes time to regain their trust and reduce their fear towards manual therapy or stretching or mobility work or any type of exercise altogether because they're so sensitive. You know, the same thing can happen when we're prescribing a program and we're doing strength training with these individuals. If we get a little too eager too soon, that one quote-unquote workout puts them out for a week. That's hard to come back from. I've, I've quite honestly lost a few patients, several patients in the past because of that in the first few years out of school. So if I can help you lose less patients from sharing my experience, well, then I hope, I hope that works. Shifting back to grades of mobilization discussed in last week's podcast. It wasn't last week. It was last year, actually. <laughs> but, you know, grade one, grade two, sensory motor intent, grade three, grade four, grade five, maybe a little bit more biomechanical intent. I think the biggest mistake for any clinician to think that they can stretch the patient. That is a very arrogant thought, right? We cannot ignore the stretch reflex. We need to appreciate that. Only the patient can relax. Then stretching the patient while ignoring the stretch reflex will inevitably activate the stretch reflex, prevent relaxation, and inhibit any long-term mobility gains. It may feel good temporarily, but a lot of people who ignore the stretch reflex, don't know how to practically apply the stretch reflex, don't really see much gains from their mobility efforts. So it is critical that we understand manual mobilization grades and forces and the intent of each grade. It's also critical to have the mental and clinical ability to switch back and forth between a biomechanical and a sensory motor intention Having both of these skill sets helps the clinician avoid being stuck in the quote-unquote more forces better mindset, which I tend to find primarily comes from a strict biomechanical intent where we're trying to always change tissue, which can ultimately reduce the incidence of undesirable post-treatment side effects while producing more favorable gains in function. 
being able to switch back and forth between these two intentions or mindsets, biomechanical, sensory, motor, is what really helps to reduce the incidence of these side effects. So that's the stretch reflex. Really important that we consider it when we're working with individuals, when we're doing manual therapy, when we're coaching through self-mobilization techniques. Uh, that's what I found to help me improve my own mobility, improve my client's mobility, and actually have sustainable changes and long-term gains when it comes to mobility. And I really give a lot of credit to some of the foundational concepts that came from PNF that brought me to the stretch reflex and honing that, um, that concept in both practically to my clients and, and to myself. And a shout out to Dr. Andrea Spina, Functional Range Conditioning, FRC, Functional Range Release Seminars, also really helped take my understanding of the stretch reflex and how to attack mobility training to the next level. So I would highly recommend that coursework as well. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode on the stretch reflex, a PNF basic principle. Next week, we're gonna talk about the next PNF basic principle under the proprioceptive input checklist, which would be irradiation, the famous PNF basic principle. All right, guys, until next time, have an awesome rest of your day. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a colleague. Follow our podcast. Leave us a review. It'll greatly help us spread the word and share this information with more practitioners. If you have any questions about any of the information, please feel free to email me at remez at neuropedicspt.com. I answer all my emails and I am willing to nerd out with any of you. All right. Thank you again for listening and have an awesome rest of your day. I want to let you know about our foundation's mentorship program. This is a 12-week program designed for orthopedic and sports physical therapists interested in better understanding how various motor control and neuromuscular rehab models can be integrated into any practice, making you a well-rounded therapist while improving outcomes. With the various motor control perspectives available to us today, oftentimes we can be left feeling confused, not knowing who to listen to and which course to take next. We know what it feels like to take a weekend course and feel like you have to choose between one approach or another, but it doesn't have to be that way. What if a certain depth of understanding in various models brought us some clarity, cognitive agility, and creativity into our clinical practice? That's our goal with this 12-week program. We'll dive deep into five of the foundational systems of motor control, like the reflex model and the dynamic systems model. We'll dissect each model's strengths and weaknesses to see how each model may complement one another through synergy. Here's what you'll get through this 12-week program. You'll get home study content, which will consist of PowerPoint audio lectures. You'll get one-on-one -on -one mentoring calls for an hour a week where we dissect practical case study examples from your current caseload so you can apply the content to your clients right away. We'll also have plenty of time for Q&A so you can get a deeper understanding of the home study material. Here's what you will not get from this program. We're not offering new techniques or fancy exercises, and we're not promoting new assessment or evaluation strategies. And rather than bashing other systems, we'll be taking a different approach towards motor control, an inside-out approach where we start with our why and our beliefs and values. If you're interested in learning more about this 12-week mentorship program, please email us at neuropedics 
pt at gmail.com. We're now offering free discovery calls so you can learn more about what we have to offer.